Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Ish Desai, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Robert Kane, President and CEO of the Association of American Colleges of Osteopathic Medicine, known as ACOM. He was a practicing pulmonologist early in his career, but spent most of his time in academic medicine. We're going to be asking him about his medical training and how it became impacted by COVID, and learn more about osteopathic medicine in general and how it's shaping the role of healthcare. Thanks so much for being with us here today, Bob. I am happy to be with you. Well, let me just dive right in. I'd love to kind of get your thoughts and hear a little bit about your background in terms of what sparked your interest in medicine in the first place. Sure. You know, I don't think there's any one thing that actually caused me to be interested in medicine. I loved science as a kid. My father was a pharmacist. And so I think that role model and that exposure to his work uh, certainly caused me to develop an interest in healthcare. But somewhere along the line, I decided that medicine was for me. And that probably happened in high school. And maybe it was anatomy and physiology, but uh, it was at a relatively young age. What at that young age drew you to osteopathic medicine in particular? Well, actually, I didn't become interested in osteopathic medicine until I went to college. And so when I actually left my hometown, went to college in New Wilmington, Pennsylvania, Westminster College, I didn't know anything about osteopathic medicine. And I was working as an EMT in a small community there that happened to have an osteopathic hospital. And it was the exposure to those physicians who were so proud of their degree and their profession and really their story and uh, what they were trying to talk about, their role in healthcare, their role in patient care, the philosophy and the passion that I saw in them actually uh, caused me to select the DO degree. And can you speak for those that may not know much about the DO degree, what is the philosophy? Sure. So, you know, what's interesting about osteopathic medicine for me is I would say we're um, physicians with a philosophy. And, and it's actually something that we begin to learn from the first days of medical school. And so um, osteopathic medicine is built upon a framework of principles. And those principles are very health oriented and something that I think has always been needed in healthcare, but certainly when we think about some of the challenges uh, in the system today. Basically, there are four main principles that we'll call the tenets that guide the educational process. And so the first is really focused on uh, the interaction of mind, body, and spirit, and how we need to be thinking about those things when we care for every patient and every healthcare uh, issue that they potentially present with, so that we're looking at them in a very complete way in terms of the care that actually needs to be delivered. The second is that the body has an intrinsic ability to heal itself when it's provided with the right conditions. And we see that happen all the time. So as, as physicians, think about what we see during recovery from an injury or after a surgery or from certain infections. And so our role is to create the right environment for that healing to occur. Sometimes that's the use of medication. Sometimes that's the use of surgery. In the case of osteopathic medicine, that may actually be the use of manipulative treatment uh, in order to create that proper environment. The third really focuses on the relationship between structure of the body uh, and the function of the body. And so thinking about the fact that structural health and musculoskeletal health is important to overall health. Once again, that's where the concept of manipulation actually becomes important because with that type of treatment, we're trying to maintain or restore proper body function. 
The fourth principle really ties the other three together. And, and what it guides the DO to do, the doctor of osteopathic medicine, is to make their decisions based upon those three principles acting together for each patient. So as a practicing pulmonologist, I used all the medical and surgical tools that are available to me to practice medicine, but I did them through the lens of what I was just describing. Again, as a DO and as a practicing pulmonologist, I also integrated OMT or manipulative treatment into the care of patients to maintain that structural health. At the same time, I was thinking about using the right bronchodilators to treat COPD or the use of a bronchoscopy to diagnose a lung cancer. So um, in that sense, it's based upon principles and a philosophy. That's a really, really nice breakdown. I'm curious specifically around the manipulative treatment and what that means for you and your practice. How do you use that and, and what's an example? One thing I do have to be very open about, I have not practiced since 2008 as I moved more into academic leadership. But um, in my care of patients, if you think about the thoracic cage and the structure of the thoracic cage itself, whether it be the spine, the ribs, the muscular components of it, rib dysfunction can very easily add to work of breathing in a patient. So whether we're talking about a patient who has a pneumonia and needs to breathe more quickly, a COPD patient who may have airway obstruction, um, the inability to have good free movement of the ribs and the spine can limit their ability to breathe and add to their work of breathing. And so the techniques that we would use to treat that would be first to identify what it is that seems to be limiting and causing that increased work of breathing from a structural standpoint, and then trying to use a treatment that can hopefully reduce uh, that change and change the work of breathing for a given patient. You know, a lot of what you're describing, I think it's been very mainstream now in terms of how people think about their health as being not just the absence of disease, but really, are you optimizing wellness or optimizing your human life? So I think that it feels like it's become more mainstream, and I'm curious, is that your sense as well over the last decade? Absolutely. I think as both degrees and both traditions in medicine continue to grow and evolve, you know, there's a recognition of, of a, a movement to a place that says these things are important for all patients and for all physicians to think about as they're caring for the patients. And then there are a lot of other professions, right? So for example, I'm thinking of chiropractors, massage therapists, other folks in the field of medicine or healthcare that apply some of these same principles. And, and how does osteopathic medicine work with those other groups specifically? Do you send patients to those folks? Do you use some of the same techniques they do? Is there any overlap that we should be aware of? I think when you actually talk about the manipulative techniques, um, there's certainly similarities that occur between what physical therapy would use. Many of the, the physical therapists uh, in the early years were learning from DOs who were actually doing some of the training. So um, I think there is definitely overlap there. Um, the fact that the, the two schools of thought around chiropractic and osteopathic medicine arise at a similar time in American history, you know, that there's probably some historical overlap there. But of course, the, the difference with the osteopathic physician was the approach to fully practicing medicine, but doing it through a different lens. And I think that's what really separates from simply doing manipulation and think about where that fits into a practice this was actually related to the overall practice of medicine and surgery. And a lot of people may not know, so I'm just going to state this just to be clear, students that are studying this field are required to take the same examinations and they experience the same rigor as an MD student, but it seems like they have essentially extra content that they have to learn and master as well as that. Is, is that a fair assessment? They actually do. So if you compare the curriculum for both the MD and DO degree, they're similar when it comes to the biomedical content 
the clinical content and the experiences that the students are going to have to, to go through. But what happens for our students is that lens I was talking about, um, there's really someplace between 200 and 250 additional hours of lab-based education, classroom-based education to teach those principles, solidify them, and try to create that approach to decision-making. And so, yes, there is some additional training. So can you tell us a little bit more about ACOM and its role in helping to make sure that training is happening in, in a way that meets your standards of excellence? ACOM is the national organization that helps to support all of the colleges of osteopathic medicine. We've been around for a while, 122 years. So we're looking forward to our 125th anniversary here in just a couple of years. And really the mission is the same today as it was uh, when ACOM was founded. Um, we're here to lead and support the nation's colleges of osteopathic medicine. And we try to serve as the unifying voice for osteopathic medical education. Um, we've grown. So the profession starts with a single school in Kirksville, Missouri in the early 1890s. Uh, today, we're looking at 37 fully accredited colleges of osteopathic medicine, operating 57 locations in 33 states. We train about 31,000 medical students, which today represents 25% of all medical students uh, receiving a degree in the United States. So the growth has really been pretty profound in the decades uh, since uh, we were first founded by Andrew Taylor Still. So we try to serve as the voice uh, of osteopathic medical education. To do that, we offer faculty development programming, uh, leadership development programming. We support research and advocacy efforts uh, for the colleges and for the students. That's incredible. 25% is higher than I had in my head. I, I thought it was closer to 15%. That's impressive. Is there a presence outside the U.S. as well, Canada or other countries? So after osteopathic medicine was founded by Dr. Still in the 1890s, one of the most interesting pieces of our history is how many European physicians came to the United States to learn from him. So they already held a medical degree in Europe and they traveled to Missouri in order to add this additional component to their education. And then many returned to other countries. Um, so today you actually do see the presence of osteopathic practice throughout the world. But in other parts of the, the world, they are not trained or licensed as physicians. And so it's a, a more of an adjunct degree in terms of its role within the health system. Uh, but there is a strong presence uh, throughout the world. The American Osteopathic Association has a significant amount of advocacy work going on worldwide to increase licensure for the American DO, so the United States trained DO uh, throughout the world. And speaking of the world, obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic, so I'm, I'm just curious, what has COVID-19 done both for the students that are coming this fall, uh, but also how are osteopathic schools coping and changing amidst all this uncertainty, especially because of this clinical aspect of the training? Well, clinical has definitely been a challenge. I, I think I can probably break their responses down into four areas. So first we have to get students into medical schools, right? So there's the application process that needs to be addressed. Then we actually have to get them into the seats so we can begin the education itself. At some point, as you know from your training, we have to get them into the clinical setting uh, to be able to do that part. And then finally, we have to match them into a residency so they can go on and do graduate medical education. So there's really work happening in all four 
of those areas throughout the country. So working with ACOM or working independently as each college, uh, they're working through the application process, trying to deal with missing information or inadequate information, things that normally we have a medical college admissions test score, we have the grades and transcripts from these uh, other institutions that they've been going to for college, we have to find other ways to get that information and potentially do a, an assessment this year. We've had to change the interview process. So all of our colleges agreed to do virtual interviews for this particular year to try to account for uh, safety and inequity that could come from live versus uh, virtual. Um, they're trying to cope with the variability in information to at least review and consider applications without an MCAT. Uh, at this particular point, and the same thing without scores. So that part, I, I think a lot of work has gone into on the part of the colleges. They've had to adapt to be prepared for the students coming onto the campuses. So uh, smaller classes, flexible classes, multiple classes throughout the day to be able to move the students through. And for osteopathic medicine, we've been talking about that hands-on component. That starts from the earliest days of medical school. So significant precautions trying to make sure that's safe and that we can have uh, that uh, training done in person. It's quite possible we'll see disruptions again and need to move back to virtual training and catch up on that as we move along, but we'll work through that. Clinical education, very challenging. It's state by state, community by community right now as we deal with potential shortages of PPE or other challenges for the practitioners who would be teaching, uh, but certainly the schools are working on a regular basis with those uh, teaching institutions to make sure the students have a place to complete their education. We use a very distributed model of education. So rather than concentrated in larger centers, our students tend to be very distributed uh, throughout communities for community-based training. Uh, so quite a bit of work needs to be done there. And then finally, uh, as we look to the transition, we're already thinking, we just finished the match. We just got students into residency this month. We're already looking to next year. And so thinking about what will be necessary to prepare students for likely uh, less visibility to programs than they've had in the past, uh, virtual interviews uh, that will be taking place instead of live interviews in so many cases, and then the transition itself uh, in making sure those last months of education can be completed. Um, we meet regularly. Uh, with our schools. Uh, we actually meet with our board of deans every week. We have since the pandemic started, and uh, we try to share information across the colleges to make sure that they're trying to meet students' needs as best they can. That's really helpful. And, and Bob, as you know, the other kind of issue that our country is, and really the world is grappling with, is racism. And this became spotlighted with the death of George Floyd. I think that there was a statement ACOM put out comparing racism to an incurable disease that is not responding to treatment. With that in mind, I'm curious, what are the things ACOM is doing right now around diversity, equity, and inclusion issues? Yeah, that issue of incurability was was something that as I, I first worked with our team to think about how do we how do we express ourselves and in, in related uh, to the challenges that we're seeing is that the patient we see today that we can't cure doesn't mean we give up on looking for an answer to that problem, right? Because maybe the next person we do a better job and the next person after that. And so that's been sort of the way our conversation has been is that we can look at our history, we can look at today, but each day we just have to keep doing a little bit better uh, with this challenge. From our perspective, uh, you know, I think that the idea of what are we ready to do? Well, we know if we look at this as a disease, we're not ready to recommend treatment. We, we know we've got to do some listening, some, uh, increase our awareness. Uh, we have some teaching to do and learning to do. 
I feel like I'm in deep listening mode right now, that in order to be an effective leader, I've got to ask the right questions and better understand the specific uh, issues and hopefully ultimately act uh, in a way that allows us to contribute to some kind of change in healthcare education and healthcare. To do that, what ACOM has been involved with is a forum that took place on July 29th. We've had a number of uh, good speakers participate in that. Those speakers have been offered the platform again uh, throughout the year uh, to address certain domains that we think we need to spend time on. So the, the learner, the healer, the system as a whole, the social impact, the mental health impacts of racism and injustice. So we've tried to focus on bringing the community together to have a conversation, creating an adaptive work group with inside of ACOM that can pull together our colleges to try to talk about the problems we face in healthcare education, the questions that we need to answer, and what are the things that with our resources and our abilities that we can try to respond to today and take this in small, movable steps uh, that we hope some point we are able to see change down the road. The webinar that I mentioned is actually recorded. It is available on ACOM's website, uh, acom.org. Uh, and certainly we would welcome people to review it if they're interested. That makes a lot of sense. And because of your position, obviously you get to talk to faculty and students. Have you heard from any grassroots movements offering solutions that, that really resonate with ACOM? I'm thinking of groups like White Coats for Black Lives or SNMA, these student-run organizations that are really trying to champion these issues. Have you heard from them uh, around things that ACOM should be doing or, or partnering with them on? I think two important things to share there. Um, I actually had a conversation with the president of one of the universities that hosts our College of Osteopathic Medicine. And it was so exciting to hear the turnout that they had that was driven by students for the White Coat for Black Lives movement and uh, the number of, of students that engaged. And she sent a picture of that and, and you could just sense the pride that that leader had in her school. So I know that there were activities that occurred. That was one that was specifically brought to my attention. The other is the webinar I just mentioned. And so um, the uh, Student National Medical Association uh, reached out to much of the medical community, really asking us, what are we going to do? So we invited them to be part of the webinar. So the speaker talking about the learner and that learner who will have additional time as the year goes on uh, from that community, we wanted to engage directly in our response. Kind of related, but another issue that's obviously come up in higher ed is around student debt and rising costs. And as you know, one part of the inclusion and inclusivity is trying to make sure everyone can attend schools and get a chance to, to get into these professions. I'm curious, are there other programs that ACOM is to help low-income groups achieve success in an osteopathic career? Well, certainly our government relations team is, is heavily focused on the student debt issue and making sure that programs remain in place that can help to provide loans and make sure that students have the ability to receive a medical um, education. We have a grassroots uh, ed to med campaign trying to support that as well uh, within the community. ACOM itself has a small scholarship program that we hope to grow, uh, the Arnstein Award that's given each year to underrepresented minority students. So that is one direct effort, but we recognize that that's a place we, we do have to find uh, ways to continue to support uh, students and to increase that. There's also opportunities, not necessarily through 
ACOM, but also through the American Osteopathic Foundation that has scholarship programs as well uh, for underrepresented minority students. Wow, that's great. I didn't know that. I, I, it's really exciting to know that you have these opportunities in place and that you're looking to grow them. You know, one of the things I, I think COVID has done is it exposed a lot of vulnerability within, within our healthcare system, our educational system, how employment and unemployment work, all these things. What are some lessons you think ACOM has drawn from COVID-19 around how you conduct business and, and how we can move the needle forward in terms of healthcare in general? So clearly we've been able to watch the supply chain issues, the preparation issues, the lack of a coordinated response, but we actually have experienced that firsthand. And so in March, when this first started, I had the opportunity to urgently call together our board of deans as we started to see hospitals asking us to remove students from the clinical environment. And the first concern, of course, was, well, what are we going to do to continue the education of these students? So a number of adaptive work groups were put into place very quickly inside the organization, one of which came to be called Students Assist America. And um, the Students Assist America didn't start out with that title. It was simply a response to say, how can we educate our students about the pandemic? How can we make sure their education continues within the pandemic? And what role can they be to help address the pandemic? So those three things were really the underlying questions that we wanted to resolve. So the group quickly came together, started working on a common curriculum to uh, teach the students about uh, infectious disease, about pandemic management, personal protective equipment, and so forth. We wanted to push that out to our colleges as quickly as we could. But the second part was, how can the students become engaged in a response to the pandemic? So assuming we could get PPE in place, we could have a, a relatively safe, uh, that was a critical part of it, environment for them, supervised, appropriate for their level of training. But what we discovered was there was no easy way for us to connect to the communities across the country and do this in some organized way. And um, we realized that this also wasn't just something that if all, all we did was to use the MD and DO students in the country to respond, we were failing to recognize the contributions of so many other professions. So we actually reached, began reaching out to the physician assistant groups, the nursing groups, uh, social work groups. We ended up with 10 professions that are part of Students Assist America that now, now we are beginning to see movement. We have to go state by state and commonwealth by commonwealth to create the connections to try to make students available as a response to what's happening. And so to step back, I think the lesson we learned in trying to move Students Assist America forward, no preparation that allowed us to connect easily with groups that were prepared to take students and no coordinated response to make that easier for us. So over time, we've moved from seeing Students Assist America as the sort of first wave of the footprint of the pandemic of what can we do to we should be looking at this long term that between the MD and DO students in the United States, you know, we, we're looking at more than 100,000 medical students in training every year. That's a small army. And what skill set could they possess that in times like this, they could easily be able to not only continue their education, but contribute? And how could we do that in a coordinated way? Magnify that by adding nursing students, PA students, social work students, pharmacy students, and there's a significant ability to meet some of the underserved uh, needs that we have in the system right now. So we're looking through that program to continue to try to prepare better for the future uh, and to make sure that uh, from a student standpoint, we can be part of the answer in the future. 
That's such a compelling image of the army growing as you get more and more allied health professions rolled in and other groups too. I'm curious, right now, a lot of these folks are coming out of training and, and entering a very weird time. Maybe as a closing, I'd love to get your thoughts or advice to that army you speak of as they're trying to develop their career. Well, I think the, the, the first and foremost thing is we need you more than ever right now. And I know there's disappointment, there's uh, anxiety within the community because there's so little control for the students, no matter what degree uh, they're actually trying to earn. But that idea that we need you to keep moving forward, um, there are a lot of people out here trying to do their best for you, right? And, and it may not feel that way every day, but we really are. So I think for the students, you know, this is gonna be a defining moment for this generation that's uh, training not only in medicine, but other healthcare professions. It's going to affect the choices they make for graduate medical education, their career choices, and carry for years into the future. So I, I suggest don't lose hope. We are going to get through this pandemic. We need them to remain committed to prepare for potential disappointments and disruptions. Now, everyone's experiencing that. And so you know, to try their best to be flexible and adapt and, and to keep in that in mind that idea, we need you. You know, as people move forward, we have to make sure that we continue to build a physician workforce uh, that is uh, ready to take care of uh, patients uh, every day of the future. Well, listen, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a very heartfelt advice, Dr. Kane. I really appreciate it. Thank you. I'm Dr. Risha Desai. Thank you for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast. <laughs>